You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 9, The Iron Soil of Corsica. Thanks for joining me. Well, we're back to the main narrative. This episode, we'll be discussing Napoleon Bonaparte's roots. At various times in his career, Napoleon either emphasized or downplayed his Corsican origins in public, whichever looked more advantageous given the circumstances. But his own writings and private correspondence make it clear he was profoundly influenced by the history and culture of the island where he was born. Napoleon left Corsica as a child, and only spent a few years on the island as an adult. But during his adolescence, he saw himself, and was seen by others, as a Corsican rather than a Frenchman. The Corsican language, an Italian dialect, was his native tongue, and he never lost his fluency. The young Napoleon really was a foreigner. Until the revolution, Corsica was an overseas possession of the French king, not a part of France itself. The distinction wasn't purely legal. The language, culture, and history were very different from the mainland. You might compare Corsica's relationship to France in this period to the status of Puerto Rico in the United States today. We'll get into the issue of Napoleon's identity more in the future when we talk about his childhood and early career. Today, I'd like to talk about the Corsican experience in the 18th century, about the events and society that shaped Napoleon and his family. James Boswell, the great Scottish Enlightenment writer, visited Corsica and was a great admirer of its people. He wrote the first modern history of the island, An Account of Corsica, published in 1768. In describing the character of the Corsicans, Boswell borrowed a passage from the author John Home, quote, Virtue springing from the iron soil, end quote. Boswell saw Corsica as a tough, unforgiving place. That's the iron soil. But he thought adversity instilled the Corsicans with virtues, like bravery, hardiness, and love of liberty. Personally, I don't really believe in ascribing character traits to entire nations of people, but looking at the island's history, it's easy to see how he might have reached that conclusion. Let's start with the basics. For the geographically challenged, Corsica is on the western coast of Italy, 90 kilometers or about 50 miles from the Italian mainland, and it's roughly twice as far from the French coast, northwest of the island. Corsica is about 3,300 square miles, or 8,700 square kilometers, which is pretty small, 
It's about the same size as Puerto Rico or Crete. The terrain of the island is rugged and not very productive. Once you get a few miles from the coast, it's rocky and mountainous. That rocky soil is no good for large-scale agriculture. Corsica isn't really set up for shipbuilding, for fishing or trade, and that iron soil is purely metaphorical. There are no real mineral resources either. So the backbone of the Corsican economy was herding, mostly sheep and goats. This was a decent enough way to keep the population of the island fed and clothed, but nobody was getting rich off of cheese and wool. Compared to other regions of Europe, Corsica was poor, sparsely populated, and isolated from international trade. There was a silver lining to the island's poverty. Without large concentrations of wealth, Corsican society was a lot more egalitarian and democratic than many other places in Europe. The nobility and the church weren't very powerful. Aristocrats and clergymen weren't insulated from the rest of the population by money and tradition the way they were in France. If you read histories of the island or biographies of Napoleon, a lot of them describe 18th century Corsica as backward. I've never liked that term. It's not that I'm worried about offending 18th century Corsicans or something, but it makes it sound like the conservative, traditional nature of Corsican life came out of some kind of moral failing by individual people. It's absolutely true that Corsica was old-fashioned and a bit of a backwater, but that was due to material circumstances, not because they wanted it that way. The island just didn't have an economy that would support a ton of dynamic human activity. And the Corsicans weren't ignorant. Like many Italian peoples in this era, they were wild for classical history, and very much identified with their Roman ancestors. It was the standard among wealthy families to send at least one son abroad to receive a university education, usually in Italy. But however you look at it, the truth was, there was a lot about Corsican life that hadn't changed since medieval times. It was a paternalistic culture built on a traditional conception of honor. State authority had always been weak, so politics and society were dominated by a clan system. Networks of family loyalty and blood ties that went back generations. If an average Corsican had a grievance, say someone encroaching on the clan grazing land, the first instinct would be to take it to the patriarch of the clan, not to some magistrate or sheriff. And for a serious insult that impugned family or personal honor, it was generally considered acceptable to seek justice yourself at the point of a stiletto dagger. As Napoleon himself put it, quote, Vengeance is a duty imposed by heaven and by nature. End quote. These private feuds pursued in the name of honor or vigilante justice are referred to as vendettas. Rural Italian vendettas were a popular theme in 19th century literature, which is how the word entered English. Romantic authors tended to exaggerate and sensationalize the practice, so there's a lot of bad information out there. Vendettas didn't always unfold the way you might assume from popular culture, but they really were an important feature of Corsican culture. So Corsica had always been a tough place, but in the 18th century, war and politics made it even tougher. In 1729, the island entered a period of rebellion and internal strife that would continue almost constantly until 1769. 
There were pauses, and the level of violence waxed and waned, but we're talking about four decades of civil conflict and foreign invasion. It had a profound effect on generations of Corsicans. It all started with an uprising against the Republic of Genoa. Corsica had been a Genoese possession for centuries, but the island certainly wasn't part of the Republic. Genoa treated Corsica much more like a colony. There was a period in which the Genoese government actually handed over administration of the island to a private bank to settle a debt. The Corsicans were given little say in the administration of their own country, but Genoese control was weak. They built six fortified towns on the coast to act as administrative centers and trading posts. But the Corsicans mostly ran their own affairs through that traditional clan system, especially in the rugged interior. The Corsicans had never really been happy with this arrangement. In 1729, economic problems and tax hikes pushed resentment into rebellion. The insurgents quickly seized control of almost the entire island. Genoese control over most of these areas had been mostly theoretical in the first place. They set up a provisional government in the mountainous interior, in the heart of Corsican resistance, away from the Genoese towns. The rebels seemed to have all the momentum, but their position was not as strong as it appeared. They didn't have any navy or artillery to speak of, which meant Genoa could hold on to those fortified coastal towns almost indefinitely. But the Genoese couldn't really press their advantage. They didn't have much in the way of an army. Genoa traditionally relied on expensive mercenary troops, and the Republic just didn't have the cash to hire a force big enough to completely occupy and subdue the interior. So, a stalemate ensued. And that's more or less how the situation stayed for years. Both sides shifted strategies and appealed to outside powers for help, but neither was able to gain the upper hand. There were attempts to negotiate and end the conflict, but diplomacy stalled as well. And so, two whole generations of Corsicans grew up in front of that backdrop of guerrilla warfare and political instability, including Napoleon's parents. But what's really remarkable about the Corsican rebellion isn't its length. It's the progressive, modern state the insurgents were able to build in the shadow of the conflict. By the mid-18th century, the rebel Corsican Republic had an elected assembly, independent judiciary, universal adult suffrage, including women, and a written constitution that recognized a universal human right to self-government. On paper, this was the most liberal state in the world. If it had been founded a hundred years later, it still would have been ahead of its time. Corsica may have been poor and off the beaten track, but it came to be recognized as a beacon of progress by many of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment. The progressive rebel government is what led Jean-Jacques Rousseau to claim, quote, Someday this little island will astonish Europe. Voltaire described the rebel armies this way, quote, The main weapon of the Corsicans was their courage. Bravery is found everywhere, but such actions aren't seen except among free people, end quote. As far away as America, the New York City chapter of the Sons of Liberty, a radical patriotic secret society, named their paramilitary wing the Corsicans, in recognition of the islanders' bravery and the ideals they shared. 
Intellectuals and radicals had been following events on the island almost since the beginning of the rebellion, but it was James Boswell's book that turned that elite interest into a kind of Corsica mania that rippled through the reading public all over the Western world. An account of Corsica was unabashedly pro-rebel and anti-Genoese. Boswell even included an introduction written by Pasquale Paoli, a prominent rebel leader. Pauli hoped an account of Corsica would, quote, make known to the public the bravery and piety of those who have shed their blood in defending their rights and the liberty of our country, end quote. He definitely got his wish. Boswell's book was a bestseller, and Corsican independence became the cause celebre of the era. If you lived in the mid-18th century and were influenced by the Enlightenment, Free Corsica would have been your version of Stop Global Warming, or Save Darfur. The man who wrote that passage became the face of the cause. Pasquale Paoli made a good symbol for Corsican freedom. He was almost single-handedly responsible for the liberal constitution, and had led rebel armies to more victories over the Genoese than anyone alive. Paoli was an absolute titan in his own day, one of the most famous men of the age. Historians have called him the Che Guevara of the 18th century. His contemporaries would probably be shocked to learn that he's been largely forgotten. Here's a little taste of how some of Pauli's supporters talked about him. This is an excerpt of a poem that appeared in Edinburgh, Scotland's weekly magazine in July of 1769. Quote, Where self-approved by honor's strictest plan, you find the patriot, hero, and the man. Immortal honors shall around him wait, and virtue form his dignity and state. Her loudest trumpet fame shall lift on high, and laurels thus acquired shall never die. Such, great Pauli, thou mayst justly claim. Such are thy honors, such thy trophied fame. A bleeding people all look up to thee, to thee the guardian of their liberty. Friend, father, general, all in thee combine, and all, all attend to thy great design. End quote. So some of the Pauli love was a little over the top, to say the least. Boswell was known to attend costume parties dressed up as a Corsican freedom fighter. It's all a little ridiculous, but you have to remember, if you were the type of person who believed in democracy, limited government, and popular sovereignty, Pauli was your guy. There was really no one else. In the late 1760s, George Washington was a wealthy Virginia planter whose 15 minutes of infamy in the Seven Years' War were long forgotten. Thomas Jefferson was a wealthy young lawyer of no real reputation. Thomas Paine was an anonymous English schoolteacher. Georges Danton, Maximilien Robespierre, and the Marquis de Lafayette were all children. The Enlightenment had plenty of thinkers, but no heroes yet. No one until Pauli. Of course, it wasn't just the foreign literati who idolized him. The Corsicans called him Babu Diapatria, the father of the homeland. For most of his life, he was recognized as the unquestioned leader of the nation by the vast majority of Corsicans. Pauli was practically deified both at home and abroad. Looking at his achievements, you can't help but think even the most excessive praise makes a little sense. He gave this so-called backward little island the most progressive system of government in the world. 
He led poorly equipped peasant militias to victory over expensive armies of professional mercenaries. The clan system and tradition of vendettas had made Corsican society fractious and unstable. The rebel side of the war was prone to infighting and political backstabbing. Pauli successfully united all of the various factions under his own rule. His administration reformed the clan system and tried to incorporate it into the official democratic structures of the government. Under Pauli, the vendetta was banned, and the rule of law brought to every corner of the island. I'm not a fan of the great man theory of history, but in this particular case, it's hard to deny Pauli's individual role ushering in an era in which a tiny war-torn backwater became the envy of enlightened Europe. So, how did he do it? For starters, he had some help from his family background. His father, Giacinto Paoli, had been one of the original leaders of the uprising against Genoa. But the elder Paoli fell out of favor and went into exile on the Italian mainland. Corsican politics were treacherous at the best of times, and the added stress of the rebellion made them absolutely cutthroat. So Pasquale Paoli spent his teenage years in Naples. But the Paolis landed on their feet. The king of Naples welcomed them with open arms, and the young Pasquale was given a first-rate education. It was here where he was exposed to the writings of the Enlightenment, and became a committed convert. Like a lot of literate Corsicans, Paoli grew up reading the classics, and practically worshipped the Romans. This was something he had in common with many of the leading figures of the Enlightenment. Pauli and many of his followers didn't view these ideas as new and radical, but as a modern continuation of the ways of their Roman ancestors. After all, hadn't Rome started as a republic, ruled by elected leaders? Hadn't they built their empire on civic virtue and the rule of law? His whole career, Pauli was an expert at combining the traditional and the modern, seemingly without contradiction. Some of that was due to his personal political cunning, but I don't think it would have been possible without that intellectual connection between the classical past and the rational future promised by the Enlightenment. After graduating from university, Pauli joined his father as an officer in the Neapolitan army. This was not one of Europe's best militaries, but the experience gave Pasquale a chance to see a modern professional military from the inside, experience that most Corsican rebel leaders lacked. When a power vacuum opened up back in Corsica, the elder Pauli decided his son was ready to fill it. Pasquale was still only a teenager, but his father pulled some strings, and he was elected to the position of general of the rebel armies. Obviously, this was primarily a military position, but it also had some executive functions in the Corsican government. You might expect such a young man suddenly thrust into a position of power would be unsure of himself, maybe act as a puppet of his father. But Pauli immediately took charge and asserted himself. Perhaps understandably, not everyone in Corsica was excited at the prospect of being led by a teenager who no one had seen since he was a boy. Pauli's enemies elected a rival general and prepared to fight a civil war, but he dispatched them easily. Pauli showed mercy to his defeated foes. After all, they were Corsicans. He was already striving to make himself into a unifying figure for the whole island, rather than the leader of a single faction. He hadn't lost sight of the real enemy, the Genoese. 
The Corsican War of Independence was a seesaw affair, and when Pauli arrived, the Republic of Genoa was definitely on the upswing. They had broken out of their fortified towns and been able to secure much of the coastal lowlands. Once they had the rebel heartland in the interior highlands isolated and surrounded, they aimed to finally choke the life out of the rebellion once and for all. But like any good guerrilla commander, Pauli refused to hunker down and wait for the inevitable. He went on the offensive, surprising the Genoese and seizing the initiative. Within a year, they were bottled up back in their fortified towns. Pauli controlled the rest of the country. And he did not rest on his laurels. As soon as the Genoese were defeated, Pauli immediately began reforming and strengthening the Corsican government. That famous liberal constitution I mentioned was promulgated less than a year later. Pauli was astute in recognizing he couldn't stamp out the clan system. It was too deeply entrenched in the culture. Rather than abolishing the old power structure, he reformed it. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there actually were some democratic, egalitarian elements to traditional Corsican society. Pauli aimed to strengthen those elements, while weakening, then ending, more patriarchal, undemocratic aspects. Corsica had a traditional assembly of noblemen and clan elders called the Dieta, sort of like the Estates General or the Parliament. Pauli converted it into a real modern legislature, elected by universal suffrage. But we shouldn't go too far over the top praising the level of democracy in the Corsican Republic. Pauli was still general, effectively president for life, installed by his father's cronies. Historians still debate to what extent this was a true republic of laws, and to what extent it was a personal military dictatorship, albeit a relatively benign, progressive one. Whichever the case, constitutional reform was just one part of Pauli's larger project of state-building. Corsica didn't really have any national institutions. Everything had either been run by Genoese outsiders or handled informally through the clan system. Pauli tried to build up a real professional bureaucracy and central standing army. To this end, he built a city. That type of centralized administration requires a seat of administration, a capital. Amazingly, Corsica didn't have any large towns other than the six Genoese outposts on the coast. Up until this point, this had been a decentralized pastoral society. There hadn't been any need. The village of Corte was chosen as the site of the new capital. It's right in the middle of the island, in the roughest part of the highlands, far from the Genoese and near the heart of the rebellion. The jewel of this new city was a university, the first in Corsican history. Corte never grew into a metropolis. By the time of Pauli's death, it only had a population of around 2,000 people, barely more than a village by modern standards. Whatever Pauli's ambitions, Corsica still just didn't have the economy to support a major urban center. But Corte was successful as a center of administration. The project proved that the Corsicans were capable of modernizing their country themselves without the oversight of a colonial master. All of Pauli's achievements we've talked about so far were realized in under 15 years. It begs the question, how did he maintain such a rapid pace of change? The most obvious answer is that his military victories paved the way. After decades of war, 
Corsicans probably would have gone along with almost any leader capable of delivering some level of security. But there's more to his success than that. Those victories would not have been possible if Pauli hadn't been able to swiftly defeat and outmaneuver his Corsican political opponents and unify the rebellion. His democratic centralizing reforms were incredibly radical. Sure, all the military success gave Pauli a lot of political capital, but enough to totally transform society? Pauli was a good general, but I think you see his true genius in politics. He was an expert at gauging his audience and giving them what they wanted. To the traditional-minded rebel clan chieftains of the interior highlands, Pauli presented himself as an old-fashioned guerrilla leader, his father's son, a patriot fighting to defend their traditional rights, kind of a Corsican Robin Hood. To more commercially-minded lowland Corsicans, Pauli projected an image of stability and progress, a unifying leader who could deliver peace, and whose reforms would modernize the country and bring the blessings of a strong, centralized state. And as we've seen, when it came to the international stage, Pauli loved playing the role of Enlightenment hero to his intellectual admirers. The image he projected abroad was of a kind of rustic philosopher-warrior, part noble savage, part cosmopolitan man of letters. Just as comfortable discussing the finer points of Montesquieu as he was conducting swashbuckling raids against the Genoese. Obviously, none of these images is a complete picture of Pauli. These are simplistic political narratives crafted to paint him in the best possible light. But there's also a grain of truth to all of them. Pauli was a complicated man. There were many sides to him and many influences on his character. And, for a time at least, he had the energy, skills, and political capital to deliver on his promises. I think all great leaders do this to a degree try to simultaneously inhabit these different versions of themselves. Almost inevitably, there comes an impasse, a moment in which those competing images come into conflict, and the leader must choose which of his audiences will be disappointed. Unfortunately for the Corsicans, their new republic would not last long enough for that moment to come for Pauli. Ironically, it was Pauli's successes which set into motion events that would lead to the conquest of the island. In the wake of Pauli's victories, the Genoese were confined to their coastal strongholds, yet again back to square one. They had been fighting the rebellion for decades, and had nothing to show for it. Under Pauli, the rebels were well-led and increasingly well-organized, stronger than ever. It was now clear to the Genoese leadership they simply did not have the resources to secure victory. There was no denying that Corsica had become a quagmire, and they wanted out. So, Genoese diplomats began making overtures about their openness to selling Corsica. It didn't take long for representatives of the King of France to come knocking. France was looking for a way to expand its power in the Mediterranean, and they'd had their eyes on Corsica for some time. In 1764, the deal was signed. How Genoa could sell something they didn't actually control was obviously the elephant in the room, but both sides had good incentives to overlook this particular detail. Both sides knew what the French were really buying, a legal justification to seize the island. France insisted the treaty remain a secret. 
This was a tricky proposition politically. They spent years trying to build up their influence in Corsica, hoping to quietly pave the way for a peaceful transition to French rule. Well, the Corsicans had been willing to fight the Genoese for decades, and they were stronger and more confident than ever under Pauli, so you can probably guess how well that peaceful transition went over. In 1768, the French gave up on doing things quietly, and began building influence in the loudest way possible, flooding the island with troops. In the face of overwhelming force, some Corsicans gave up, but Pauli and his closest allies resisted. Just as they had against the Genoese, they fought well. Pauli even handed the French a few surprising defeats. But it was hopeless. Pauli could only scrape together a few thousand men at a time, mostly poorly trained militia. The French had a nearly endless pool of disciplined professional soldiers. By early 1769, the French army was closing in on Corte. Pauli and his small army made one last, disastrous attempt to hold them off. Then the general and his entourage boarded a ship bound for exile in London. Sporadic guerrilla resistance continued, but the French were in control. They governed the island from those former Genoese strongholds on the coast, not from Corte. The new university was closed down. It wouldn't reopen until 1981. Pauli received a hero's welcome from his British intellectual admirers, but Corsica never left his mind. Pauli is a fascinating figure in his own right, but there's a reason I'm spending so much time on him. He's also incredibly significant to our story. Throughout the zenith of his power, Pauli's personal secretary was a young Corsican nobleman named Carlo de Buonaparte. History knows him as Carlo Bonaparte, Napoleon's father. In this era, a personal secretary to a man like Pauli was a lot more than a note-taker and a letter-writer. Those of you who know your American history might remember that George Washington chose Alexander Hamilton to fill this role. The secretary of a general or a statesman was often more of a protege than an assistant, a promising young man who would use the position to learn the skills of leadership and make connections with other powerful people his patron did business with. We can't know for sure if Pauli viewed Carlo Bonaparte as a potential successor, a future political ally, or just as a young person who needed mentorship. Whatever the case, the general took him under his wing. So Napoleon had a close family connection to Pauli. But there was also a more important, intangible connection between the two men. As you can probably imagine, the memory of Pauli remained strong in Corsica, even while he was in exile. Many young men from the generation that grew up after the French conquest idolized him, and perhaps none quite as fervently as Napoleon. As a young man, Napoleon wrote that his greatest dream was to fight at Pauli's side in a war of liberation against the French occupiers. He wrote essays about Pauli, and even a few awkward, deferential teenage fan letters. Napoleon modeled himself on the exiled general, both consciously and unconsciously. I think you can see Pauli's influence on Napoleon throughout his career, right to the bitter end. You've probably already noticed parallels between them. Both Enlightenment-influenced generals who parlayed their victories into political power, both centralizing enlightened autocrats who tried to sell themselves as all things to all people. 
I promise these parallels will only get deeper as we delve into Napoleon's story. Napoleon would eventually meet Pauli, and that youthful hero warship would soon after turn into something much more complicated. I think I'll leave you on that cliffhanger for now, with Pauli sailing away from Corsica, destined to play an ambiguous role in the future. 1769, the year of Pauli's exile, is a good stopping point for more than one reason. As the young Napoleon put it, quote, I was born as the fatherland died. Thirty thousand French troops vomited onto our shores, drowning the throne of liberty in rivers of blood. This was the horrible sight I first saw. End quote. To put it less dramatically, Napoleon came into the world only a few months after his hero's defeat. Next time, we'll be talking more about the Bonaparte family and Napoleon's early life. Until then, thanks for joining me. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.